0: This episode was recorded via Zoom, so I apologise for any sound issues. Welcome to the Resourceful HDR podcast. I'm Sally Purcell, and in this podcast, I explore high-degree research, HDR, career and employment experiences, how individuals have made career decisions, navigated transitions, and helped others to build a career. In Australia, HDR usually includes Master of Research, PhDs, and professional doctorates. I hope you enjoy this podcast. My guest today on the Resourceful HDR podcast is Dr. Kate McGuire-Rosier. I first met Kate when she attended a workshop I ran in late 2015. Kate holds PhD in Dance Theatre and Disability from Macquarie University titled, Performances of Care, Dance Theatre by and with Australian Artists with Disability. Kate graduated in 2019 and she teaches across Performance Studies, Cultural Studies and Media Studies at Macquarie University, the University of Sydney, and the University of Technology Sydney. She has held various arts administration positions currently at Oz Dance, New South Wales as Projects and Programs Manager and prior to this at Critical Path. To date one of her most challenging and exhilarating experiences was interning at Jacob's Pillow Dance Festival for the 2009 season in Massachusetts USA. Kate continues her research collaborating with independent artists and scholars alike as well as organisations, including the Sydney Institute for Robotics and Intelligent Systems, and the International Federation for Theatre Researchers Performance and Disability Working Group, of which she is a co-convener. A dancer at heart, Kate has most of her fun hanging out and working with others. Thanks for joining me, Kate.
1: Hi, Sally, thanks for
0: having me. Okay, so you completed your PhD a couple of years ago. When was
1: that? I completed my PhD actually in 2017, And then I was awarded it mid 2018, but actually graduated almost mid 2019. So, sort of took a couple of years to be awarded my PhD, but I completed it at the end of 2017.
0: Yeah. That would have been a lovely feeling.
1: Yes, it was definitely.
0: (laughs) So, could you talk about your project?
1: Yeah, sure. So, I uh, researched dance and disability. So I, I did an ethnography, a rehearsal ethnography of two, well, three performing groups in Sydney and Melbourne. And I looked at how artists work together in the rehearsal room. And the, I suppose the genre that I was working within was, um, or that I was observing rather, was um, dance theatre which is basically a mix of dance and theatre. So, you know, if you can imagine dancers talking, actors moving, that sort of thing, it's quite self-explanatory. And in this practice in Australia, where there's disabled performers, there's often non-disabled performers working alongside disabled performers. And I was really interested, I I went into into these rehearsal spaces wanting to look at the relationship between bodies and technologies because I spent the first year of my um, PhD and the initial proposal was exploring how a disability perspective on humans' relationship with digital technology is actually quite unique and we can learn a lot from it. And in dance especially, that relationship is really very intimately, deeply explored because a lot of dancers or disabled dancers, dancers with disability, dance and use digital devices in their practice. So let it be, you know, crutches or a speaking device or, you know, a cochlear implant or that sort of thing. What became apparent when I actually was in the rehearsal space wasn't really these relationships between bodies and technologies at all. It was these relationships actually around care and these frictions between the non-disabled dancers and the disabled dancers, this kind of urge to um, care on the part of the uh, non-disabled dancer and, you know, sort of ask for help or just start helping without being asked versus this sort of like resistance to be cared for or about on the part of the disabled performer. And so that's what my thesis in a nutshell explored, those very particular relationships to care, which actually became fairly expansive in the context of my thesis. So I talk about, for example, you know, how disclosing your particular relationship to disability as a disabled artist is actually an act of self-care or an act an act of care, you know, in general. So yeah, that's um a of a teaser i suppose of my
0: project yeah so that would have been an interesting shift for you to think you were going into it to do one thing and then it, it sort of was informed by the project itself to shift how did you feel about that when that happened
1: how did i feel yeah i mean i think in a way it was exciting to know that you know i was actually encountering this turning point in the research you know to spend basically two years on one idea and then having to sort of do an about turn it was a bit exhilarating i mean there were there was other sort of circumstantial factors
0: involved too So this often happens for PhDs, that they're going in and their project will shift. It sounds like you thought it was something that was quite exciting, yet people can react very differently. What do you think it was that made you feel that it was exciting and exhilarating rather than seeing it as something quite innovating?
1: It wasn't sort of one moment or one particular time. It's sort of about, you know, two years into the project, things started to sort of fall into place quite gradually. But then I do remember this time that I was sitting on a bus... And I was just looking out the window and it was the same bus I always take to campus. And I just realised my entire project was like pivoted on care, on this notion of care. And that's when, and that was only about, I suppose, nine months out of submitting. And I just went down this very exciting kind of rabbit hole into care theory and care ethics, which is a branch of philosophy. And everything just suddenly started to make sense. I don't think I was scared about or shocked that my work had taken or was taking this turn because I kind of knew the nature of ethnography was sort of explorative and iterative and so things, you know, everything was subject to change. I mean, how I got into my research topic was by being a support artist for a friend of mine that wasn't related to university or Study or research—it was just, yeah, me being an, an artist.
0: That capacity to be flexible and adaptable—that—that that is actually being an artist. It is that constant discovery and reinvention that keeps it exciting.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's a theorist who talks, Ian Day, who talks about going into you know the fields in anthropology or, or if you're doing ethnography, not with an empty mind but an open mind. And so, you know, you should be sort of open to these experiences and know that they're going to change. But you're always bringing your own experience and your own knowledge of a particular field to bear on your observations and your encounters with people or things in the world when you're in the field. And while I was, you know, reading all this theory and like contemplating this idea of an open mind and that sort of thing, like, I kind of always acknowledge that I think like an artist does. I do, I do not think rationally. I don't think logically. I just sort of intuit what I know to be true. And in a way, I think that's a very kind of guttural, instinctual way of researching. And that meant when it came to things like care ethics, which is what I ended up, you know, drawing on to support my ideas those lines of inquiry into care ethics sort of really just fell so neatly into place to support my way of thinking because it was you know ethics as opposed to morality is about it's actually in practice whereas morality is more sort of abstract theory and you know as dance is a artistic practice a creative practice it just really complemented how i thought about what these artists were doing yeah and of course as an being an artist you always kind of filter the world through your own experience, and so of course, any knowledge and the, my whole thesis that I produced was me laying bare my own biases, my own value judgments, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I spent probably half my introduction articulating my own positionality in relation to the research because I was basically a disability scholar who is non-disabled, and what does that mean or say? And I basically kind of, my disclaimer is that any knowledge I produce can be considered completely patronising because I don't have a, a particular lived experience I'm drawing on to inform my interpretation of what I observed, those artists doing and saying. So all I had really from that was informed by disability was theory, you know, and consulting people and you know, soaking up what the disability arts industry was doing like a sponge, which is what my supervisor advised me to do from the get-go, which I found very helpful advice. And, yeah, that supervisor was Yuji Sonnet. And, yeah, my other supervisor, Julianne Long, because of me having consulted the disability arts industry like a sponge, And having soaked up all that industry information, sort of trusted me and supported me in my own thinking, you know, the decisions that I took with my project and where I steered my project. And her being an artist herself actually meant that her endorsement of my ideas was really valuable to me because she was coming from the standpoint of a practising artist herself.
0: So what led you to enrol in a PhD?
1: Yeah, maybe a couple of reasons. Number one, I did an arts degree and it's a bit kind of, (laughs) I shouldn't say. (laughs) Well, you know, there's limited opportunity. You can't kind of just suddenly walk into a professional occupation. Sort of got to forge your own path. And I happen to be a very good student. And, you know, my honours supervisor just suggested I do it. But also, um, not just that. He, was, he wasn't he was just offering to do it. He was offering to sort of like mentor me and train me, like do actual research training. This was before Macquarie introduced the MRes. So, you know, all I had was an honours thesis. I mean, not all, but I, I did a production thesis. So I did a creative work in my honours. And and yeah, so I, the reason I actually did a PhD was to continue making art I used it almost as an excuse like you know having access to dance studios and having access to an income and uh and you know mentors to sort of help me do it and so that sort of infrastructure if you like to be an artist but then of course what happened I met Georgia Rose Krenko a poet and performer who is brilliant and beautiful and she moves with cerebral palsy and I met her through my sister. Georgia moves with uh, paralysis down one side of her body and has a unique sign language with one hand due to her paralysis and so she fingerspells, and I was an interpreter and support artist for her during this dance residency back in 2013. And so I became her voice yeah, well, an extension of the voice, I should say, in the context of this creative development. For me, it was like a whole new way of thinking and doing art. And I just thought it was incredibly rich and resourceful and, like, unpredictable because we were working with heaps, like, such an eclectic mix of bodies and minds in the room. And I was just like... Fascinated the entire time about, you know, uh, artists with Down syndrome giggling in one corner and then a pole dancer with one arm telling stories about being discriminated against as a one armed person in this world. And it was just, um, yeah, an incredibly sort of sobering and uh, exhilarating experience. I don't know how else to put it. Anyway, so I wanted to collaborate with this artist. But due to sort of, you know, circumstantial things, that wasn't possible. And so my project shifted from sort of being a creative producer towards being a, yeah, an ethnographer and observing other artists' work. In a nutshell, that's that's how I, why I decided to do a PhD (laughs) and why I decided on the topic of dance and disability.
0: I can understand that desire to keep working as an artist and the PhD allowing you to do that. Did you have any career plans before the PhD? And if you did, did they change along the way? No. Well, I don't
1: know if I hate to admit it, but it, that's how it was. I didn't really have any career plans. You know, I, I walked into a PhD on the back of honours. I think maybe I had a year off and I was working as a tech assistant in the same department where I did my undergrad honours and where I was about to do my PhD. And it was a great little break because it was very hands-on, practical teaching students how to use a video camera and edit a movie and that sort of thing. And also host artists working in the studio spaces. So I was learning kind of very pragmatic, transferable skills and still sort of working with academics and students. But I didn't have any concrete plans really. Yeah, no, I
0: didn't. (laughs) I guess there's that assumption that you need to have a clear plan and it's funny coming from me because that's why I work with people but we've talked about this previously Mm. about and you use the words intuitive iterative you know that that discovery along the way is just fine but it is understanding who you are and what matters to you what are your values and so that you can recognize opportunities Mm. as either they present themselves or you have an opportunity to make one for yourself and that's what you've been doing and it, it fits with the way you approach your PhD, the way you approach your art. And so that makes sense for you. And mm. it, you're quite comfortable with that on the whole. It's really more that society might be saying, but what are you doing? Mm. <laughs> and that you, you have to answer that. And really, if someone was doing that about your art, you wouldn't feel that you had to justify that. So I think that's just fine. It's the way I've operated mm. along the way. We did have that conversation as you're finishing your PhD. So yeah, how, did that make a difference when we did that? And if it didn't, well, we'll cut this out. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think absolutely. I mean,
1: I think it was great talking with you because you know, you've, you've got that artistic creative background too. And knowing that hearing you explain that those are extremely helpful and valuable and transferable skills and knowledge and training to sort of not only just careers, but like all walks of life. It was very helpful and I suppose validating to hear because, you know, like I mentioned before, you know, um, doing an arts degree can sometimes feel, I don't think I put it so politely before. Uh, the, the problem is, I mean, you just hit the nail on the head before, like society doesn't, especially in Australia, we just don't value artistry and, and the arts. It's, it's so sad, I, I find. Like, and, you know, I'm talking to you now and the arts industry is, is basically the only industry that hasn't received a rescue package right now. 75% of the industry is, is gone. Like, and, you know, Carriageworks just died this past week. Like, and I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be dramatic. I'm, I'm just expressing sort of my response in the face of this. I, I just think, you know, when you look at the UK, when you look at Germany... When you look at, to a certain extent, even the state's arts and creativity is is actually valued (laughs) in other places, in developed countries, and it just doesn't
0: seem to be understood here. I saw something where someone had said, well, if you aren't a supporter of the arts and don't believe they should be looked after in this period of COVID-19, perhaps don't watch any films, take your paintings off your wall, stop listening to music, because these are things that you know are the fabric of our society I'm sounding dramatic I know too but I feel passionately about it as well. I, yeah I, I
1: suppose with all my what I do now you know with my jobs and teaching I just sort of at any given opportunity promote the arts or point students in the direction of going, see, going to see a live show somewhere I'm that's I'm, I'm kind of this default Advocate now, I just yeah, <laughs> even with my friends,
0: I tell my friends off for watching too much Netflix and that sort of thing.
1: I'm a bit annoyed,
0: <laughs> yeah. I guess there's some art in that as well. Again, if you look at all the you know the creatives that are involved in all of those productions and so on. Oh, so, sure. um, talking about COVID 19, how has that impacted upon you?
1: Yeah, um, well, I think probably in much the same way as a lot of other people. You know, isolation is a bit (laughs) difficult. Strangely, I feel like I've gotten a little bit used to it. And in a way, this kind of isolated lifestyle suits me a bit. I think doing a PhD actually prepared me for this because I I got used to my own company, got used to working by myself, you know, self-motivating, self-disciplining. So in that sense, I'm well-prepared and habituated, but I am a very social person and I'm someone who's sort of out most days every week. So that the kind of social aspect obviously has been a bit tough. In terms of my work, not much has changed. You know, I have an office job at Ausdance New South Wales and basically a working from home situation. Just translates very seamlessly for office jobs. So there's been not much change there, really. If anything, I find myself more productive at home because I'm not distracted by, you know, colleagues having a conversation or other things that happen when you're working with people. It's interesting times. I, I think uh, started not to check the news more than a couple of times a day just for, um, you know, my mental health. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky and privileged to have a job. Um, I mean, I work in the arts and and we were hit the first and the hardest, so you know, I'm grateful for that every day, basically, at the moment. I've still got an income, for, for now, anyway. I think, like for everyone else, I'm reflecting on, you know, what this new normal is going to be in the future and I'm not really sure what to hope for in terms of silver linings, but I can't help thinking that, you know, maybe there'll be sort of some mainstream understanding around, like linking this health crisis to things like human caused climate change. But I (laughs) tend to be a bit pessimistic about humans. And so I'm not sure if I actually have that faith in people. I think, yeah, just doing a lot of introspective reflection on, you know, my life and the world right now. And, What's going to happen in the future? That's basically how COVID nineteen has impacted me. Yeah.
0: So, if you were doing a PhD now, what do you think would be the challenges associated with COVID nineteen, and how do you think you'd manage that?
1: Look, I would be so distracted. I think, I, I think there's memes going around at the moment reminding everyone remember, you're not working, you're trying to work or something like that. I I can't remember the exact phrasing, But I think that's so true. It's so hard to work in these extraordinary circumstances. I I find it difficult. And I'm one of the few people who are privileged enough to work from home, who is privileged enough to have a job. And I've already, you know, done and dusted my education. So, um, (laughs) and I'm struggling. So... You know, I think it, I think it's pretty extraordinary. I think the other challenge would be whether to incorporate this health crisis into the framing of your project or not, because whether you like it or not, I reckon it's kind of bound to have an impact. And you use the word inspired, and I always am very careful about that word um, because in the disability space, um, people connected to Stella Young, who was, I'm not sure if you know Stella Young, she was a disability activist from Melbourne, and she did this TED Talk at TEDx one year, I think in 2014, and she talked about inspiration porn, where, which means, you know, people with disability being used as objects of inspiration to motivate, you know, non-disabled folk. So, I'm always very wary about using anything to do with inspiration or inspiring when it comes to disability because of that. But I know exactly what you mean, and
0: in terms of me being sort of invigorated. Do you look at your PhD and think, yeah, I'm really glad I did that? And if so, in what ways are you drawing upon it? Mm, that's
1: a really good question. Yeah, well, look, I am very glad I did it. For me, because I did it in my late 20s, I think I enrolled when I was 26, graduated when I was 30 or something like that. It was kind of like a stepping stone into the world for me. So not just as a kind of professional, but you know, as a someone emerging from university. So I think the, for me, what I draw on the most, apart from, you know, what I learned in a very tangible sense, like, you know, the knowledge I was kind of trying to explore with things like, you know, the relationship between academia and the arts industry, or like, you know, the arts industry being kind of the representative of the real world. So, you know, versus the academic bubble and the kind of tensions between the two, which I experienced as a researcher, and also kind of the importance of collaborating with people. I ended my PhD like so hungry to work with another human (laughs) or being, because I was so sick of doing it by myself. I just kind of made a commitment to just do collaborations from here on. So I've been, and that's what I do. So I I co-author all the time. My latest journal article, five of us wrote it, and that's kind of rare in the arts, I think. But you know, my background's theatre and dance, and we, we never do that solo. There's always other bodies in the room, and it's live. You do it face to face, and you touch each other. Like, it's not this singular researcher going into their cave and coming out with some new knowledge. It's like, not like that at all. And so my whole thing during my PhD was just trying to make my research as applicable as possible to the world and then afterwards that's I suppose what I I'm trying to kind of yeah, do the work of farming my PhD at the moment in a way that's like as accessible as possible to people outside academia like artists and and things like writing a version of my thesis in easy read so people with intellectual disability can actually access what the hell I was on about, you know, in my thesis. Which is a really interesting thing in disability performance, especially writing research in uh, very plain, accessible English. I, f- yeah, hopefully that answers your question.
0: Being able to separate who you are from your page—it it is a whole experience. It's not just a published document or a, a piece of work, a performance or whatever it might be. Yes. It's It's so intrinsic to who that person is. And so you you have brought your artist persona to it and that's all with the PhD. And then, of course, you emerge from the PhD and then your work, whatever shape or form it's taking, is actually now influenced by you as the artist, the person and the person that has done that PhD.
1: Yeah.
0: We didn't talk about the highlights and challenges in the PhD. Did you want to talk about that? That sort of
1: dovetails with what I was saying about collaborations.
0: What really kept me
1: going halfway through my PhD when I was actually struggling with the isolation of it was meeting a group of researchers in my field, disability performance. And it was at a conference and we were a working group at the Theatre Studies kind of peak body. And it was just such a breath of fresh air to meet people who kind of spoke my language and had read all the stuff I'd read. And also who were very, like a mixture of people, like old, young, emerging, established artists, like theorists and disabled, -disabled. non-disabled. A lot of them, surprise, surprise, were women. I think that's kind of across the board in the arts, but not so much theater, but especially in disability theater. And that actually sort of, the connections I made in that group like I still have, and I'm now the co-convener of that group. And that corresponds, I suppose, to one of the challenges I faced, which was this disconnect I discovered between academia and the arts. I found that a lot of the artists I work with really had no idea what I was doing, why I was in the rehearsal space. I think they were sort of a bit suspicious and a bit kind of maybe scared or defensive or protective, and perhaps that says something about the kind of competitiveness that our artists and art workers and arts company are forced to deal with on a day-to-day basis because of due to funding um, restraints and that sort of thing. But I think it also points to this there not being much of a tradition of artists and academics working together. Sydney University is very good at this and in fact their performance department was like birthed out creating a space where artists could come and practice and rehearse. Yeah, it's a bit more of a story than that. But across the board, I think artists are really, yeah, a bit tentative when it comes to working with academics and researchers. Whereas from what I could tell when I went to places like the UK during my PhD, it wasn't really the case. There was much more trust there. Um, And my colleague in Switzerland, who is basically a resident scholar in a company, in a theatre company, there was just not those issues at all. That's a, a challenge as much as a highlight. I mean, I think that was why I found finding these scholars in this working group so comforting because I was able to kind of talk through these issues and have my experience and responses to that experience kind of validated <laughs> by this group who recognised that it, that it is challenging to work with artists at the best of times I suppose yeah because it's not like the UK and Switzerland they don't have their challenges but it's just different I suppose yeah
0: I guess one thing I also want to talk about if you can imagine someone's listening to this outside of academia go what are you gonna do with that not not that you've got that clear oh this is what I'm gonna be but that stuff that drives you and how you've actually managed to build those networks or you know, relationships and so on. Because I do remember we talked about that. You are going off to that conference, I think, when we met. All right, um, yeah. And, and how those things have all helped you along the way. So could you talk about what you've been doing since you graduated?
1: Yeah. I've been trying to get a <laughs> full-time academic position. And in the meantime, I'm, I've got a day job in arts administration and I teach or um, well, I continue to teach at quarry University of Sydney, now I'm at UTS, and of course I am still publishing my research, and I co-convened some wonderful working group of scholars in my field. Yeah, to be honest, I, I am quite practical when it comes to this, you know, my career trajectory. I, at the end of the day, I want to work with people I enjoy working with and doing work that makes the world a better place. And so I've given, you know, myself actually a time limit on getting a full-time academic job and that's I think 3 years out of my PhD, so I'm 1 year into that time frame or schedule. And and if yeah, I've got sort of, you know, plan Bs and plan Cs, but at the end of the day, I think I really enjoy working with people. And that's kind of, it's those sort of working relationships really that drived me during my PhD and then now continue to drive me. There was a book that came out recently called, was it, The The Work is the Relationship or something? It was about, um, it was written by this, I think, an arts administrator actually in Melbourne who basically just makes the case, you know, a a working relationship with a colleague is like 90% of a given project or a given operation and that kind of resonates with me too so just as long as you're not doing work that's harmful to others or I think um, as long as you're enjoying the process of working with people or other beings that you like being around I think that's the most important thing I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up so <laughs> yeah
0: I think that that's a good attitude to have really because it means that you are just still growing and still mm. looking and, and finding opportunities as they emerge and noticing them because sometimes people don't notice things because mm. they're so intent. So I think that can really actually reap a lot of benefits having that. And as long as you're just open to that, you know, mm. just go, that's, I've always had that attitude. Yeah. But sadly, when you grow up and now it's like, um, what to do when you grow old. Let's <laughs> <laughs> what happens yeah. really looking to grow up. I'm really interested in that book, The Works, The Relationship, because the meaning of work can, can actually be about your work relationships mm. and how to give the work meaning. Having those really productive, supportive and respectful relationships mm. can actually excite you to, to do things that are better than you might have done otherwise.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, I will send you the details of this book when I remember what
0: the title is. Well, thanks for giving me your time, Kate. It was really interesting and really exciting to hear what you've been doing since you finished your PhD. And I look forward to seeing what else you're doing in the future.
1: Thanks very much, Sally. It was a pleasure to speak with you and thank you for your questions and your curiosity.
0: You have just listened to an episode of the Resourceful HDR podcast about the career and employment experiences of high degree researchers, that is, Master of Research, PhD and professional doctorate candidates, graduates and others in the HDR ecosystem. You can also find me on Twitter as ResourcefulHDR and on LinkedIn, Sally Purcell at Macquarie University. Macquarie University students and staff can also access the HDR professional development iLearn site. Mm